Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. This show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef with the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by marketingforattorneys.com, helping attorneys and law firms to clarify and upgrade their marketing and messaging to grow their firms while reducing reliance on pay-per-click advertising. Visit marketingforattorneys.com to book your free consultation today. My guest today is Douglas E. Knoll. Doug left a successful career as a trial lawyer to become a peacemaker. His calling is to serve humanity, and he executes his calling at many levels. He is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and a highly experienced mediator. Doug's work carries him from international work to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts to training life inmates to be peacemakers and mediators in maximum security prisons. His website is dougnoll.com. That's D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for being here. Specifically, I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Absolutely. So let, take me back a little bit. What first drove you to get a law degree back in the day? Well, I graduated from Dartmouth College with a, in, with a major in English literature, and I really wanted to continue to sharpen my critical thinking skills. So I thought that law would be a good way to do that. I didn't have a driving desire to become a lawyer. So I went to law school with the intention of just learning how to think better and process information. That's what happened. I did well in law school. I was on the law review and made the dean's list and all that sort of stuff. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the intellectual challenge. So that's what got me into it in the first place. Excellent. And what did you most enjoy about your years practicing law? I really, I was a trial lawyer. I tried, I lost count of how many jury trials. I tried civil jury trials, over 200, probably not just jury trials, but bench trials, arbitrations, stuff like that. I really enjoyed the trial process. That was really fun. The rest of it I could do without. But being in the courtroom and presenting evidence and arguing cases was really a blast. And that I really appreciated and really liked. And so what led you to transition towards sort of the mediation side, the peacemaking side and all of that? In the mid-1990s, I was on a vacation after a trial and I did a self-evaluation of how many people, how many clients I'd served that I thought came out of the litigation system, our civil litigation system, better off than going in. And of all the cases that I'd handled, I can only count five clients that I thought really benefited from the process. And I just decided that that wasn't what I wanted to do. If I didn't want to go another 20 or 30 years and only serve 15 or 20 people. So on that trip, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be trying cases for a whole lot longer. 
And I came back after that trip. I live in, in the central Sierra Nevada and was driving down out of the mountains to my office and heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies at Fresno Pacific University. And that caught my attention. And ultimately, I ended up enrolling in my late 40s in that program and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. It completely changed my whole view of the world. And to make a very long story short, I left my law firm and left the practice of law in 2000 to become a peacemaker and a mediator. Sounds like a fascinating program. Could you tell me a little bit more about what's actually involved, what you study, the kinds of things you were engaged in? So that program was one of the first multidisciplinary programs in the country and because conflict is multidisciplinary. And so we, I was able to explore peace and conflict from historical perspectives, from theological perspectives, from psychological perspectives and ultimately neuroscience, from so, 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 social psychological perspectives, cognitive psychology, just a huge number of different disciplines come to bear on the understanding of peace and conflict. And I was privileged to have to be taught by some of the giants in the field. Most people don't know this, but the whole international restorative justice movement started in Fresno, California in 1981. And I was trained by the people who started that movement. And so I was deeply grounded in restorative justice scholarship and practice. So it was an amazing experience. Oh, wow. I've never known that all came out of Fresno. That's fascinating. Fresno is an interesting place. It's the birth of the three strikes movement, three strikes law, and also the birth of the restorative justice movement. <laughs> <That's a> <laughs> Quite the dichotomy there. Absolutely. It sounds like you, you left the legal industry with a lot of misgivings about what it was doing. And so if you could change one thing about the legal industry and one thing about our legal system to make the world a better place, what would those be? Get rid of the concept of zealous advocacy. Get rid of it. It's a myth. It's not in oh. our canon of ethics. It was taken out by the ABA, I think, in 1981. It's not in the California Code of Professional Conduct. It does not exist in our ethics. And yet we all excuse incredible incivility and blocking behaviors on the basis of zealous advocacy, and it does not exist. And most lawyers don't even understand what zealous advocacy is. They think it gives them permission to do whatever they want to do, and that's not true. Zealous advocacy only applies when certain conditions are met. Number one, you've got, you're in front of an impartial tribunal, a judge. Number two, the representatives have equal resources and equal skill. Number three, there are rules that, can, that are to be followed, such as rules of evidence and rules of procedure in the courtroom. And if, though, if any of those are missing, then zealous advocacy does not apply. And most lawyers don't get that. They don't know that. So they just use zealous advocacy as an excuse for being jerks. Yeah, that's wild. I was not expecting that answer. I've never heard that, but I, I love that. It's, that's you know, the definitely... number one problem. And there've been tons of books written on this stuff. Of course, most lawyers don't read that kind of stuff, but if you're going to fix the legal, <laughs> if you're going to fix the legal profession, that's the first thing you do is you get every, you take the brainwashing out, get rid of that whole concept of zealous advocacy and throw it out the window and say, it is actually unethical to be a zealous advocate unless you're actually in the courtroom. That's physically in the courtroom. That's the only time zealous advocacy has any application to the practice of law. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Because being a lawyer myself, going through law school, that's from day one, that's sort of drilled into your head. And I was at UC Irvine, which we took like a civility oath and everything in the beginning. But then immediately you're like, yeah, become a zealous advocate, do, you know, whatever it takes for your client, because you're going to be this hero, and you're going to save the world, save people's lives and all this stuff. But there's so many, but then you, that comes up against sort of like the amoral conception of a lawyer. And there's all these sort of conflicting brainwashing things. Of, this is what a lawyer is. This is what you should be doing. And it's like, wait, how do you actually reconcile all of these things? And how do you they can't. actually reach a restorative justice model? You can't. You cannot do it. You can't reconcile any of this stuff because the law, the practice of law is based on a lot of myths and lies. And yet they persist in law school and law professors are unwilling to really look at the facts and really understand the history of this. Some professors are very good at it and they really understand it, but most professors, you know, don't. And so this, these myths are per perpetuated from generation to generation and nobody really steps back and looks at it. And I talk in front of, I used to talk in front of a lot of bar groups about peacemaking and the lawyer's role as a peacemaker. And I would take a stack of books of ethics and, I, and with a hundred dollar bill, and I'll say, this is a $100 bill for anybody who can find the word zealous advocacy in the code of professional conduct. I never lost that $100 bill because it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's wild. I've never actually drawn this connection before, but just what you're saying there and linking it to brainwashing, it really reminded me of basic training in the army. And you spend so much time in different formations and doing some sort of almost like cheerleading type of stuff where you're like, kill and grind them in the dust and what just implicit brainwashing that sort of helps you to dehumanize people so that by the time months or years later that you end up in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or somewhere else that we're killing people in that won't hesitate and you'll just you view people as less than human and in a way I think yeah it is it is very similar in law school you get in there and it's just hey you're going to be special you are going to graduate from here and pass the bar and then you're going to have uh, basically an unfettered license, an exclusive license to practice law where nobody else has the right to do that. And positioning attorneys like above the fray and above other people become this emotionless tactician, just operating the practice of law to do whatever you want. And yeah, it's, it really is brainwashing. And there's so few people questioning that because people go through it or people went through it before and they're like, well, I did it. It's, it's fine. Like it's no big deal. And it's, it's such an industry that's so slow to change. And right. It's so traditional. Even at a place like UC Irvine, which is a very progressive law school, but it's still a law school, which a law school is a very conservative institution by nature. And it's all based on the ABA standard curriculum, which I think is a flawed cur cur curriculum. And, and I've been a law professor. I still am a law professor and I'm at the chair of board of trustees. I'm the chair of the board of trustees of our local law school. So believe me, I understand legal education. But you make the point of dehumanization, which is one of the three ways of morally disengaging people. And you're ab absolutely right. When you when these days in litigation, the, everybody demonizes or dehumanizes the other side. And so now, once you dehumanize, then you can do anything you want because they're no longer human and your moral compass is completely offline. You become morally disengaged and it happens to lawyers just like it happens to soldiers. Now, the violence isn't there, but the bad behavior is still there. Yeah. That's fascinating. Definitely, definitely a lot of room for improvement for sure. Oh yeah. I'm a voice in the wilderness. So yeah. Oh yeah. No, like it's like a who down in Whoville just exactly. shouting from the rooftops and everyone's, what was that? What was that? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so what's the best piece of advice uh, that you have for people considering law school and, and for current law students? I think law school, I think the legal education, even with the flaws that we're talking about is still very powerful. And 
I would recommend any young person to go to law school rather than to go to business school. A JD is far more valuable than an MBA. And you can, be, you can go into business with a law degree. And, and I would also say, don't think that you have to be a lawyer with a law degree. The, the career opportunities that are open for people with JDs are unbelievable compared to 40 years ago when I entered the practice of law. And if I had the opportunities today back then, I probably would have never practiced law. I would have done something completely different. And so I say, go to law school, learn how to think, learn basically how, you know, how the law works, but then go find something really cool to do with a law degree, go into business, do a startup, become a, cons go into consultancy, but don't necessarily practice law. No, I love that. And I'm the same way. Like I was on the big law track. And then when I decided not to continue pursuing that side of things, I was getting a JD MBA since it was, I had four years, my GI bill. So it was like the best bang for my buck. I may as well get it. And then started down the road of entrepreneurship. And it was really fascinating to see how much people in law school get wrapped up into, I must become a practicing attorney. I must take the bar. I must do all these steps that everyone is very hive mind thing. Now there's plenty of people there, whether it's engineers who become IP attorneys or UCI, it was like 50% public interest focus. So those people are like, they're there for that. But then there was a lot of people who either they realized like they didn't want to be lawyers and they just kept going along and just felt like they had to. And it was like, do you have to become a lawyer? Do you have to become a practicing attorney when you leave here? Or do you just have to find something that can help you live the life that you want. And so for me, a large part of what I try to do is just inspire other people to take that leap and be like, hey, you're not a failure if you don't take the bar, if you don't become an, a practicing attorney, because there's so many other things you can do with this. And there's so much value that you can bring to any table, because most business people don't know anything about even the law that governs like what they're actually doing. And so it's, yeah, I think you're right. It's so invaluable, especially as a business education, the MBA side of things. I've learned more on TikTok in the last six to 12 months about various business things and digital marketing and stuff than I did throughout my entire MBA, which is a lot more sort of high level, like theoretical stuff, as opposed to like practical, oh, how do you actually go and do X, Y, and Z? I think the internet is really democratizing a lot of that knowledge on the business side. And Surely it will eventually in the legal side, but obviously law schools still have a stranglehold on a lot of the legal education side. And the other thing that people don't talk about is how miserable lawyers are. I know very few happy lawyers, and I look at lawyers who are my peers, and they're burned out husks, most of them, <laughs> and they're not happy. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a we had a great course taught first it was in our short session at UCI, just like a week long course. And then eventually they did it as a semester long course by these two professors in Southern California that it was all about mindfulness and self mastery. And it was basically like, yeah, hey, lawyers are mostly miserable, they don't have the emotional skills to be able to navigate like the hardships that they face. But here's a variety of different tactics and techniques that you can use to really make yourself more resilient. And to me, it was like, oh, this should absolutely be this should be a mandatory course in 1L, right? Do you really need to know all the stuff that gets taught in 1L? Not really, or taking even bar courses. When I was very fortunate to learn constitutional law from Erwin Chemerinsky in his last year as dean there, 
And every two weeks, we'd sit down, he'd have coffee with us, and we'd just chill. And you could ask him literally anything. And, and he often talked about the fact that everyone comes into law school and thinks, oh, I have to take only bar courses. I've got to do exactly this to succeed on the bar exam. And his thing was like, hey, enjoy your life. Take whatever classes you want, because bar prep programs will prepare you for the bar. Like, you literally don't need to do any of that stuff, but there's this whole hive mind of kids like that are like, oh, I must take property. I must take evidence. I must do X, Y, and Z. There's actually a different way to navigate it. Um, yeah, but still but I got to I gotta put a cautionary note in there. The UC law schools all have pretty stiff entrance requirements with high LSAT scores. At opportunity schools like San Joaquin College of Law, where I'm the chair of the board of trustees, our LSATs, average LSAT scores are way below the UC stuff. And we had a 75% pass rate in the last this last bar round, which was phenomenal, better than a lot of ABA schools. But it's because we were we really grind down to basics. So it's you're right. If you're super smart, you've got a 650 or a 675 LSAT. You're smart enough that you can take the stuff that interests you in law school, courses like jurisprudence, which is just fascinating. How do you, how do judges make decisions? And maybe you don't have to take remedies and maybe you don't have to take family law because you're smart enough to be able to pick that up in a bar review course. But if you've got an LSAT that's, say, 550 or 500, you want, you don't have the luxury of doing that because you, you don't have the aptitude for it. You've got to work really hard on the core courses to prepare you for the bar exam. So it really depends upon how deep is your aptitude for the law, which the LSAT is, as, as, for all its criticisms, it still is a good predictor of law school success. And that doesn't mean to say that a low LSAT means you don't succeed in law school. It just means you got to work your butt off because you don't have the aptitude that a person with a high LSAT has. For sure. But even I think we've seen a lot in the last year because of COVID, you've seen a lot of movements toward diploma privilege, really spotlighting the fact that it's OK. If you're going to go be a family law attorney, most of the stuff on the bar has nothing to do with what you're going to do. Or if you're going to be a corporate attorney, even less has something to do with what you're going to do. And so right. the bar exam being so divorced from the actual practice of law, how much does that sort of concern you? And what kind of uh, things would you do to remedy that? Well, obviously, there's huge debate, at least in California, around what should be tested? What's it take for licensing? What are, what are the minimum requirements we need to have people come out and be reasonably competent and be allowed to represent clients in different situations. And it's an it's an evolving process that will continue to evolve, and I think that's good. Where it's gonna end up, I don't know. We all know that law school does not prepare you to practice law. It prepares you to learn how to learn the law, and it provides you with a framework, an intellectual framework for approaching problems using legal analysis. But it doesn't teach you anything about client representation or managing a business or any of that stuff. And that's all postgraduate education that you have to take up to learn how to do that stuff. And, and the question is, the policy question is, what do we want? What do we want from people exiting law school? What do we need them to be able to do? What, how, how do we balance the need for intellectual rigor and really developing the legal mind versus or in addition to having the practical skills that mean you, you can competently represent clients coming out of law school instead of apprenticing for three or four years, which is what you know most lawyers have to do to learn the practice of law. And I don't know what the answer to those questions are, but I'm glad that people are talking about it. Yeah, definitely valuable conversations to be having. So how do you see the practice of law evolving over, say, the next decade or two, whether it's from a technological standpoint, whether it's 
integrating a lot of this emotional competency and sort of peace peacemaking skills? And how do you think that'll all resonate through the? I think artificial intelligence is going to have a a, a larger effect on the law than most people are recognizing today. When you've got huge data sets that can be analyzed with artificial intelligence, there is going to come a time in the not too distant future where if somebody wants to answer a legal question, they just go on AILawyer.com and, and type in their question, and they're going to get a pretty darn accurate answer for pennies on the dollar compared to going to see a lawyer. You're going to be able to have artificial intelligence draft fairly sophisticated agreements and really, as you said, democratize the access to legal services. There will still be a need for specialists and there will probably be a need for trial lawyers. Although I also see the day way when I'm long gone, when a lot of judges will be replaced by artificial decision-making algorithms. And it'll be more accurate and more balanced. And the, just remember the legal, what, this is again, not taught in law school, but the legal system is simply a, a way of deciding disputes. People have a conflict and they go to outside authority. They, they give up the power to decide the conflict themselves because they can't negotiate it or maybe mediation failed. So now they've got to put the decision in the hands of a third party. That could be a judge or a jury or an arbitrator. And the judge, jury, and arbitrator have assess the evidence, assess credibility, and then apply the facts that they determine to be most credible against the principles of law, and that leads them to a decision. That's all easily doable by artificial intelligence once it get, becomes more fully developed. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see cases having jurisdictional limits where it's going to be decided by artificial intelligence, and maybe larger cases will be decided by humans. But it, and maybe the appeals, people can appeal an artificial intelligence decision to a tribunal, an appellate tribunal of some kind. But I foresee the day when many conflicts and disputes are going to be decided by AI, not by human judges. Oh, definitely. I showed up to law school and I was like, I was preaching the AI law kind of stuff from the beginning and people would just be like, oh, that's going to be like decades away and stuff. And I'm like, no, there's actually like a company right here in Irvine called LegalMation that can produce work at the level of a first year associate. Like it can do RFPs, it can do interrogatories, it can do some like basic stuff, but at a really sophisticated level. And it's okay, eventually, and it does it in two minutes, right? It's like something that would take a first year associate a whole weekend to do. It turns it out in two minutes. And think about what the, how that affects the economics of law. So you've got a large law firm that, and they make their money. This always used to drive me crazy. I'd show up for a deposition and by myself, and the other, the other side would show up with 10 attorneys, three paralegals, and four legal assistants. So they just milking the client for the money. And it was just, to me, incredibly unethical. But that's the way, that's what economics are. You put as many bodies on the case as the market will bear. They're all billing at $500 or $600 an hour. And a deposition that should only cost, say, $5,000 now costs $25,000. That's all going to go away. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Even something like document review and stuff like that. It's like getting into like e-discovery of so much of that is being automated. And, and then I, I think a lot of firms are really struggling with that was all the busy work that we give to first year associates. But now a robot can do all the first year associate work. What do we have them do now? That's right. right. So I, I think there's definitely a, a lot of people say, oh, robots are going to take lawyers jobs. But I really think it's 
lawyers are then going to transition more into the client focused stuff. So maybe as a first or second year attorney, whereas you might not ever see a client face to face until year three to five, you're getting in front of people, you're establishing relationships, maybe you're getting better at business development, because obviously, in most large law firms, they just operate off of, hey, make all the associates do business development that we'll never really train them to do except for one week, one like lunch meeting per week, and we'll tell them how to be a rainmaker. But it's these people don't have the you know skills by and large to go out and develop business successfully. And then that creates so much anxiety. And then all of that's supposed to be like ancillary to your main billing hours and stuff. And so I definitely think it's ripe for a lot of disruption and things are going to change significantly. But most firms are so behind the eight ball in terms of figuring out exactly how they're going to get that done and make that transition. And that, that leads us to what are the skills that are going to be necessary to be successful in the 21st century. And it's not going to be legal skills. Yeah, again, you have an intellectual framework the law school gives you, but you've got to have interpersonal skills. Yeah. You've got to know how to negotiate. And skills frankly, are getting softer, absolutely. Yeah, and, and frankly, most lawyers are horrible negotiators. I've mediated over 2,000 cases, litigated disputes. I can count two out of the two lawyers, three lawyers that really impressed me as strong negotiators. The rest were worthless. They don't have a clue what they're doing. All they do is follow what they learned, which is really primitive distributive negotiation. And so I would tell a young lawyer, start learning negotiation skills. It's a multidisciplinary study. It's not based on the law. In fact, the law has very little to say about negotiation, but it, there's a huge amount of multidisciplinary work, cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience, decision-making theory, behavioral economics, all of these things bear on your negotiation skills and the lawyers that understand that and move away from the law to really understand negotiation, I think will be, they'll be in demand and well-served. And the other thing is to learn how to be emotionally competent, not only to have a happy, joyous life, but to be able to de-escalate situations, to be able to feel client. If a client feels deeply listened to, that client will be with you forever. But if you just blow the client off, and don't truly listen to the client, listen the client into existence, then you know your likelihood of building a long-term relationship is greatly diminished. So it's those kinds of things that are gonna become important and the successful lawyers are gonna search out places where they can learn these skills because they're certainly not offered in law school and they're not offered in in-firm in training either or CLE courses. So you have to really search, go outside the law to find coaches and trainers and people who can teach you the skills that are going to be more important in the practice of law than just being a lawyer. Yeah, I think the future is going to be so much more interdisciplinary. You do need to be able to combine, like you talked about before, it's like, hey, get a law degree and then start a startup or, or go into business and, and do a variety of things. And so it's really going to be those people that can take expertise in two, three, four, five different areas and make them into a unique combination to pursue their passions and, and help the world on a, you know, a wholly different level than has been, than been done before. Exactly. Exactly. So you seem to be very passionate about your work with prisons. Could you tell us a little bit about a prison of peace and what you do there? In 2009, my dear friend and colleague, Laurel Coffer called me and read me a letter that she had just received from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, which happens to be about an hour and a half from where I live. And this woman was asking if Laura would come in and train the lifers in that prison. There were about, at that, that time, 300 lifers in that prison because they were tired of the violence. And they wanted to be able to be peacemakers and calm things down. 
And we ultimately said yes. And after six months of wrangling with the bureaucrats, we got permission to start a pilot program in April of 2010, where we started training our first 15 women. And we designed a curriculum. We're both professors and trainers and had done a lot of mediation training, both of us separately. And we designed a unique curriculum because we, we decided that the population of students were people who did not have strong interpersonal skills. So we decided that we would spend a lot of time training them in basic fundamental skills that turned out to be quite advanced before we taught them how to be mediators. And so our curriculum is divided into four workshops over a year. And in the first workshop, we teach them a little bit about restorative justice philosophy, which undergirds our program. And then we teach them four levels of reflective listening using you statements, not I statements. And we teach them how to do peace circles or what we call listening peace circles, which reinforces their listening skills, teaches group leadership and that sort of thing. Then in the second workshop, we teach them how to make durable agreements and how to help people solve problems without giving advice. Again, skills that mediators have to have if they're gonna be successful. In the third workshop, we teach them much more advanced skills on how to manage strong emotions, how to de-escalate strong emotions, how to uh, become emotionally self-aware, how to emotionally self-regulate. And we also teach them how to morally re-engage people who are morally disengaged which as you might imagine is a significant thing to know how to do in prison. And then finally, when they have mastered all of these basic skills, we run them through a standard mediation workshop that anybody who's taken a community mediation course would recognize it immediately as an interest-based type of mediation. And then after they've got sufficient experience under our supervision, we certify them as mediators. So we started that program in April of 2010 at Valley State Prison for Women. And today we have been in 15 California prisons, 15 prisons in Greece, uh, a prison in Connecticut. We have startups in Nairobi, Australia, Spain, and Italy. And as we talk, we're in the process of putting our entire curriculum on film. So it'll be digital and any prison in the world should be able to access the entire curriculum by the end of the year. And it'll be subtitled in any language people need, which to us is just a huge leap forward for, for our project. We've trained over 20,000 inmates. We or our trainers have trained over 20,000 inmates. And of the people that have been released, because we only, we, Laurel and I only train lifers and long-termers, to, to our knowledge of the two or 3,000 lifers and long-termers that have been released who are our graduates, there are zero reports of recidivism. Wow, <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Digitizing that, putting it all in film and, and subtitling it. That's a great force multiplier to go exactly. from a few dozen to basically a, a global movement. That's that is absolutely tremendous. Yep. Well, yeah, we're really excited. It's really cool. It's a lot of work. And the people that are that we're using as our trainers are people who were formerly incarcerated and were our best trainers while they were in prison. And now they've been released and we've gathered we gather them all together and they're doing the actual training vignettes. And of course, they're very extremely powerful, incredible. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm using people who've come from that. And I, I think that's so powerful in efforts to transform things. It reminds me of the work that Life After Hate does to get people out of white supremacists and other extremist organizations right. and was founded by, you know, a former extremist uh, and white supremacist. And, and basically everyone who does a lot of that work is people who were in it before and got out and now they're trying to rescue other people from it. Right. So right. Exactly. I think that's a tremendous model. 
So you've had a, a litany of successes over the years, but how has a failure or a parent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite? I think that I, I wouldn't call it a failure as much as I would call it the in, my, my inability to successfully promote ground-shaking, revolutionary, radical ideas that change people's lives in the most positive way imaginable. But because these ideas are based on breaking myths and lies that our society feeds to us, it's been very difficult to rise above the noise and have people hear the truth. That's not so much as a failure as it is just difficult. And so it has required me to be persistent and patient and say, okay, that didn't work. Let me try something else. What else can I try to get people aware of the fact that the lives they lead do not have to be unhappy and miserable. They can be full of joy and happiness and bliss if they simply master some basic skills. But that's a tough one because everything is aligned up against me culturally to for people to hear what I have to say. Yeah, the inertia is definitely uh, pretty strong there, for sure. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot yeah, of systems in place that you know don't want that to happen, and there's a vested interest in, in not allowing it to. Correct. I do measure my success as one human being at a time. And so by that measure, things I am succeeding. I'm just not succeeding at the scale that I would like to succeed at, because if I could scale this stuff, lives would change in unimaginably powerful ways. So that's what I'm working on right now. How do I do that? How do I scale this? How do I get this out there? How do, what's the message that I have to, what's, what are the stories that I have to tell to get people to understand that they're not, that they're not locked into the myth of rationality, for example, that everything we're taught in school is not necessarily the truth or necessarily the best way to learn or necessarily the only way to be. And so it's just a process of figuring out how to get that message out and break, as I said, break through the noise. Yeah. Creating a paradigm shift. Yeah. Always a heavy lift. It's always a heavy lift. And I always seem to be about 10 years ahead of my time (laughs) and everything I've ever done. I learned how to program in college back in 1969. I started, I was coding in beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code on a mainframe computer where we were using cards and punch hole tapes. The idea of a PC was, didn't even exist then. And our, I was the one in our law firm that we were early adopters of a distributed network system. Again, not PCs. It was a kind of a interesting system before DOS came out. It was, I think, a disk management system, DMS. I forget the name of the operating system. And so I've always been an early adopter of technology. And, and in the law, it became important because although I, I, were, I was a lawyer in a, for our region, a medium sized bankruptcy and commercial litigation firm, I was often up against large LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York firms, where they would have hundreds of bodies that they would throw at a case. And I needed to use technology to leverage myself so that I could handle, I could, I could, the manpower, I didn't have the manpower requirements that, that everybody else had. And I did that very successfully, but that was a long Excellent. time ago. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? The first people that come to mind are the people that trained me in my master's degree program, Dalton Reimer and Ron Klassen. Dalton was really my main mentor and guided me for three years through 
a journey of learning and gaining insight about human conflict from every conceivable perspective. Just an amazing human being. And Ron, who is, he and his wife were the really the people that started the International Restorative Justice Movement. Ron was the one that gave me the, helped me tutor me through the practical experience of working in with deep and intractable conflict. And how do you manage that? And what do you do with it? And how do you, how do restorative justice principles and philosophy help us deal with extremely difficult conflicts? And he was a huge influence on me. So those two men were probably, probably influenced, have essentially influenced my later life uh, more than anybody else. I give them a lot of credit. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I would say the books on, there's some books on neuroscience that have really been helpful. Of course, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, very important. Every lawyer should memorize that book. Also books by neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman, Antonio Damasio's work. He's got four or five books out. Joe Ledoux, neuroscientist out of New York. A lot of his books, early books, were very influential. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is a neuroscientist out of Northeastern University in Boston, her book, latest book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, really powerful, revolutionary way of looking at emotions. So books like that, that, that are informing me on, these are books written for lay people like me. I'm a lay student of neuroscience and really help us understand who we are as human beings. And for me, provide insights about what kinds of interventions we can utilize when we're dealing with deep and intractable conflict to help people find peace. Very useful. So you spend a lot of time, you know, working towards peace, helping pe people find peace. And But for yourself, what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, habits, techniques? Uh, and so uh, on? I play jazz and blues violin. I live on 10 acres in the central Sierra Nevada where it's just dead quiet. I happen to be blessed with some of the fastest internet in California. So for me, just sitting out on my deck and looking across my land is rejuvenating. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife who I dearly love and we have an amazing marriage. And I get to interact with people around the world via Zoom. I've been doing it, using Zoom for years, but now of course the pandemic is up that game. And during the winter, I make it a point of going skiing at least two days a week. I can be the resorts less about an hour from here, from where I live. And so I can be up there skiing by 10, get in my 10,000 vertical and be home by two. And I find that to be extremely rejuvenating. In the summertime, I'll go up into the high country, go up to some of the lakes, maybe do a little fly fishing or just sit on the water at 7,000 feet in some, in some of the lakes that we have around here and just be, read a book. Love it. Great answers all around. Sounds like you got it all together there. I'm very lucky. Very blessed. <laughs> I was down in LA last week when we were doing our filming at, at Laurel's house and I couldn't believe, it's the first time I've been off the property in 17 months. First time I've been off my land in 17 months, literally. I could not believe the noise. And I grew up down there, but I just, it was stunning. And like now I'm sitting in my office and it's dead silence everywhere. 
we have no noise here. Our largest noise is a coyote howling or an owl hooting at night. And that's it. Yeah, it's a it's like a noise diet. Yeah, that's interesting. What you get, what you get used to. It's exhausting. That happens across all the senses. I remember being in Afghanistan and and we'd have people that had left or gone out into what they called village stability platforms, like essentially living in like a mud hut or something, and very limited food and rations. And I remember a guy, you know, basically had not consumed any type of sugar for probably four to six months and he came and he's literally just eating a carrot and he was just like talking about how sweet it tasted i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about i can't even perceive that but it's just amazing like what we can adjust to through all our various senses and and get a wholly different experience right exactly so if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere in the world with anything on it what would it say (laughs) and why listen other people into existence listen other people into existence oh i love that that's great and i say that because most people have never had the experience of being listened to most people have never lived in true emotional safety most people have never learned what it's like to be validated in fact the experience of 100 percent of us is that we are emotionally invalidated all our lives we're told Don't cry, don't be a pussy, don't toughen up buttercup, don't be a drama queen, it's not that bad. Oh, you're making a mountain out of molehill. All those phrases, I've got a list, I've got four pages of phrases, those are emotionally invalidating statements that destroy our humanity. And we're fed these phrases from the time we're born. And it's the most insidious, pervasive form of emotional abuse that exists. And I can speak from firsthand experience working in many maximum security prisons with many different types of people who are serving life sentences. Many of them have killed other human beings. And the reason they're there is because they were traumatized and emotionally invalidated in really horrible ways as children. Murderers aren't born, they're bred. And the antidote is to simply learn how to listen other people into existence. And if everybody could learn and practice that skill. If, 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 if only 20% learn that skill, I think that we would not have prisons in 20 years, or we'd have very f- small number of prisons. Probably what we would have are more mental institutions, or we'd have institutions where people with obvious brain dysfunction, brain physical dysfunction could be housed and treated to the extent they could be treated. But everybody else, we and our addiction levels would go down, all kinds of amazing things would happen if we simply learned how to listen to each other into existence. Oh, I totally it's agree. So you spend your adult life working out all the traumas of your childhood. And of yeah, course, I mean, the worse they are, the worse they come back. That's right. And 90, 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. So that means that at least 96% of all people who become adults are going to be emotionally dysfunctional. Because we have this, we privilege this idea of rationality over emotions, which is total BS. That's a total lie and a total myth. We're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And everything we've been taught to the contrary is a lie. And it's horribly destructive. Horribly destructive. Yeah, it's so sad because it seems like our entire educational system is based on, yeah, just emotionless, rote learning, rote memorization. And it's if we actually just focused on teaching empathy, kindness, growth, joy, love, listening, like you're talking about those empathic emotions and behaviors and skills, you're going to have such a better world for it. You're going to have so much less crime. You're going to have so much less depression, anxiety, because all those things just it's everything compounds in life, right? Compound interest isn't just for 
money. It, it happens with emotions. It happens with trauma. And then you get into like microaggressions and things like that. It's every little bit, especially for children, you can re everyone can remember like a random thing they were just told maybe by a stranger, often by a parent when they were younger. And then it just goes in there and it's inception. You're just right. It sticks with you the rest of your life. That's and correct. it's but we don't teach people how to be parents. Like most people have absolutely no idea what they're doing. You have no That's idea right. like that there's there's actual best practices that That's exist right. out there that if you learn them and adopt them and hey, it's still tough even when you know them, but you can make life so much easier for yourself and your own children if you learn the right skills and can help them master their emotions. Because you know, some kids do it out of the gate and then other kids have a hugely tough time everything exists on a spectrum but the more that we can learn you know the right skills and focus on them we don't need to be teaching to a test we need to be teaching to kindness and better emotional outcomes and that's how we get a better society not by having people with you know, 1600 on the sats and like that i agree and here's the thing that for those people who are listening who scoff at this and say that ah oh, this is just all touchy-feely bullshit and i'm not going to do any of that read the science there is tons of science behind everything that you're saying, Pacifico. And the naysayers are in denial because they're afraid of their own emotions. And that's because, and so they won't read the science, which validates everything that you just said. And it explains why we should not have only have STEM education, why arts and theater and literature are critical, and why learning the skills that you just talked about, which are learnable skills. They've got to be taught. We don't, we're not born with those skills. We're not born with empathy. We have to learn empathy. We have to learn how to listen. We have to learn how to emotionally self-regulate and become emotionally self-aware. And these are all skills that we can learn, just like we can learn how to read. You can learn how to read an emotional data field the same way you learn how to read a book. But we don't emphasize that. And yeah. as a result, our society suffers and people suffer. Oh, and totally. And yeah, and then there's just such a stigma around it, whether it's you know from toxic masculinity that it's, oh, if you express your emotions or your feelings or anything like that, then, you know, you're less than and like we should all just aspire to you know, yeah, stoicism only. And it's, it's just total nonsense. It is. And for those, again, if you're feeling skeptical about this, let me ask you, how would you like to have a competitive business advantage over anybody that you'll ever work with or be with in your professional career and have an advantage that absolutely will devastate, will, will make sure that you are assured of promotions when other people are stagnant, will assure that you have, if you want wealth, you'll have as much wealth as you ever want, and you will have advantages like nobody else has. And if you want that, then learn how to become emotionally competent because most people won't bother to learn. And if you learn emotional competency, you will be light years ahead of anybody in your peer group and be able, and you will be successful in promoting, leading, organizing in your own life and in your career. That's the secret to life. And so all you people out there who might be listening to this, yes, be skeptical and be left in the dust. And those 1% or 2% that are listening to this and they're caught by this, go out and learn the skills and you will be amazed at how you will outstrip everybody. Amazed. And I know because I teach this stuff and I watch what happens to people who learn it. They just, their careers skyrocket. Totally agree. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. This has been a, a fantastic and illuminating discussion on a, you know, a wide variety of topics, Doug. So thank you so much for being here. So this brings me to my last question. What's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Uh, that's a tough one. I, I think that I would have to say my wife 
has listened me into existence. And that has been the kindest thing that anybody's ever really done to me. Wow. Love that answer. So powerful. Doug, thank you again so much for joining me today. This has just been a fantastic conversation. It's been a, a pleasure to get to speak with you. Thank you, Pacifico. It's been a great conversation with you too. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesome.